Welcome everybody from around the world. Hello everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg and here's what's coming up. I'm delighted and honored to have our guest today, Cambria Tortorelli. To date, Cambria is the president and, and CEO of the International Institute of Los Angeles. And I have to tell everyone that I met Cambria many years ago when she was the parish life director, a pastoral leader of Holy Family Catholic Church in an area of Los Angeles, California in South Pasadena. And it was when I really saw a person in her position as a lay person, in fact, the first lay person to be in such a leadership position in a Catholic church that has 5,000 plus households, I saw a woman of tremendous leadership. And so it gives me the special delight to know that today I have an opportunity to really highlight the work she's currently doing and how fortunate we are to have her in this position with this amazing agency, the International Institute of Los Angeles, California, at a time when the world is so full of immigration in so, on many, many continents. And, you know, I have to say to Cambria, in some ways, knowing her background now, that I think, Cambria, you've made a full circle in your life because the work you're doing now really expresses your own identity in your life as an immigrant to the United States because you were born in Bermuda to British parents. You're actually an immigrant here, as I mentioned. And as you told me, you worked in four countries on three continents <laughs> with a career that spans working for nonprofits in more than 28 years. So you come to this position personally and professionally with so much to offer our city and, and the world really in understanding more about working with immigrants. Thank you very much Karen, for that introduction. And I am thrilled to, to be here and to have a conversation with you today about the great work that um, International Institute of Los Angeles is doing. Uh, but you're quite right. I am here um, in this position uh, because I have a passion for immigrants. And a lot of that is rooted, as you rightly said, in my own experience being an immigrant, um, being a very fortunate and blessed immigrant. I wasn't driven out of my country because of war or violence or poverty. Um, you know, I came chose to come to the United States for uh, opportunities, but not because I couldn't find those opportunities in uh, England or in Bermuda, where I grew up. And so, um, and then, you know, I've always felt very privileged because I am a native uh, English speaker. Um, I am quite good at forms of bureaucracy. So trying to navigate the immigration system here was very challenging for me. But I had, you know, I spoke, I speak the language um, and I'm quite good at figuring out those kinds of things. And so I've, um, I, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of the last few decades that I've been in this country, you know, reflecting on how much more difficult it is for uh, immigrants and refugees than it was for me. And I wanted to do whatever I to support them in their journey. 
Well, that's really wonderful. And I appreciate so much that you, you know, you're underlining the fact that um, as an immigrant, you came in a much more privileged position than so many people that we're seeing, you know, we see on the news, we see in, in our world communication now, so much suffering of people who have to move. And so maybe before we actually talk about today, maybe we'll go back in history a little bit and you can tell us how this International Institute started and you know what was its purpose initially sure so one of the things i really love about uh, iila is its history it's got this fascinating history so international institute was founded in 1914 as part of a whole series of international institutes that were established around the country the very first international institute was founded in new york in 1910 and it was the brainchild of a social worker oh, a a woman social worker called Edith Bremen, who uh, was working for the YWCA uh, at the time in New York, uh, at a time when there were a lot of immigrants coming over, especially from, from Europe. Um, and she recognized that while the YWAC, YWCA had wonderful services for women, they weren't as um, attenuated and specific as they could be uh, for women immigrants and women and girl immigrants needed just a, a slightly different set of, of, of support mechanisms and things. So she came up with the notion of uh, national institutes and the idea took off. And um, initially they were part of the YWCA, but by the 1930s, uh, when there were about, um, I don't know, maybe 50 or so international institutes around the country, they had a convention and they broke away and established themselves in, you know, each international institute as its own um, nonprofit. And so the original purpose of the international institutes was to provide a place of socialization um, and cultural um, uh, support for initially women and girls. And in the case of Los Angeles, that was women and girls who are arriving from East Asia and from Europe. Um, and so, the, but then by the end of the, the First World War, the scope of services expanded to, to, to um, include families. And, um, and so over the years, uh, international our International Institute in Los Angeles was a home to immigrants from all over the world. Um, it provided... Um, English classes, um, opportunities to express their own culture. So we had, there were always sort of cultural festivals happening at the International Institute. We had our kind of iconic building on Boyle Avenue and Boyle Heights, which had a lovely courtyard. So uh, immigrant families, individuals would come and, and just kind of hang out there to meet other people from their um, from their cultures, but uh, to, to meet people from outside their own cultures as well. It was really a beautiful uh, gathering place for immigrants in East Los Angeles. Well, and it still is, you know, a gathering place and how remarkable that it's, um, you know, it's evolved and survived. Now it's over a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Here we are, um, you know, in the second decade of the 21st mm -hmm. century. And so I think its purpose has evolved. What do you think um, are some of the highlights now that you, you see that its mission in, in its present location, which I know it was a very iconic building in a particular neighborhood in Los Angeles. And I know recently you moved also to another neighborhood called Lincoln Heights. Yeah, so we've actually we've had our, our Lincoln Heights building 
here for a couple of decades. So that wasn't um, we've we've had, we've been fairly well established here for. I see. And but we sold the Boyle Building um, just after I arrived actually at IILA uh, back in 2021 um, because we, you know, to be honest with you, it needed a lot of renovation and upkeep, and we couldn't afford to, to do that. Um, so, but it has it was bought by a wonderful woman who has has done the renovations very much in keeping with the historic nature of the of the building. Um, so it's 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 really uh, I think it's looking quite quite good at the moment, but I wanted just to say a little bit more about the later history of um, yes of course before we bring it up to the present time. So over the over the decades since it was founded, ILA has really been part of every major immigration wave of, of folks that have come to um, uh, through to the United States through Los Angeles. Um, and back in the 1940s, uh, in fact, in the early 1940s, when um, the United States went to war with Japan, um, and you, I know that you and our listeners will will know too well the very sad history of the incarceration um, of uh, Japanese Americans who were deemed to be a threat to the United States after the war. Um, which oh, dur during the war. That was, yeah, after the war. So they were arrested. So IILA was probably one of the very few organizations at the time that took an extremely strong advocacy position in terms of, of, of resisting um, the incarceration of, of and the treatment of, of Japanese Americans. And they were very, very prophetic. I think I'm sure that wasn't a popular stance to take. Um, in Los Angeles at the outbreak of the Second World War here. And um, we provided funding and support for some of the families that were losing their homes and businesses. Um, and we're very, very vocal in our support of, for the, the Japanese American um, population at the time. So I'm really, really proud of, of the prophetic um, part of our history. Um, yeah. As the, the decades rolled on and we had, you know, we had waves of Soviet dissidents arriving, uh, refugees from Europe at the end of the Second World War. We had Cubans arriving, then Vietnamese and Laotians. So we have been part of all of those waves, welcoming immigrants, helping them to get settled here, um, helping them to make that enormous transition to their new life here, working with them on um, getting uh, legal, um, their legal situation sorted out, uh, making sure that they could stay here permanently. Um, and then as the as the decades moved on, we kind of evolved into much more of a full service social service agency. So um, at this point in our history, we have a we serve about 53,000 uh, people a year. That's at least that's what we served last calendar year through all kinds of ways. Uh, we are an officially designated uh, refugee resettlement agency that is authorized to receive um, refugees through the uh, Office of, of Refugee Resettlement in the State Department. Uh, we provide case management services for survivors of human trafficking and um, uh, unaccompanied minors. We have an accelerated uh, employment program for newly arrived refugees and um, as, 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 asylees. Uh, we have uh, uh, nine state-funded preschools and we operate and facilitate a network of child care providers throughout uh, mainly East and South uh, Los Angeles. Um, we have a nutrition program. So we provide thousands of nutritious meals, hot meals every day to um, thousands of children in, in preschools, not just our preschools, but other preschools operated by other nonprofits uh, throughout, again, um, LA County. 
Um, and uh, I think, yeah, I think I've said pretty much all the all the things. And we things like a, tra a subsidized transportation program that we operate and a number of other services to help uh, low income families and working people. That's yeah, that's an amazing menu. And and, you know, there's very few people. Um, actually, I, I would say that not enough people know about the International Institute. And, and, you know, many times when people are very sympathetic to seeing the suffering, especially in the last couple of years, uh, seeing so many, so many people who have needed to leave their countries under horrible circumstances. And Los Angeles, as you know, has always been uh, an entry point for many people from around the world. And we're one of the most diverse cities in the world, probably, in terms yes. of, the, you know, people who come here, not under dire circumstances like what you're talking about, but just uh, it's it's a magnet for people to come and live in Los Angeles, <laughs> California. So, you know, let's break down a little bit about the, the incredible list that you just gave of your services. For instance, you mentioned now, apart from... Well, let's let's talk. Let's start with the resettlement. So, for instance, can you give us an example of having worked as you are with the State Department? Um, what happens? How how do you make contact with a refugee, and what happens to them? What is the process for them to actually, you know, be resettled? What does resettled mean? Yes. So just first of all, to, to, to give your listeners a little bit of an, an idea about some of the terminology, and we often use some of these terminologies interchangeably. Yes. But State Department perspective, uh, there's a difference between a refugee and um, an asylee or an asylum seeker. So a refugee is somebody who is uh, persecuted in their own land uh, in some way by their government um, and that their their life or their livelihood or their ability to lead a flourishing life is severely um, compromised uh, in their own country to the extent that they are they and, and possibly their family feel that, that they must leave their country in order in many cases to survive. So that's not necessarily because their country's at war. That in, in and of itself is not a reason that the State Department recognizes as a justification to to, uh, to uh, um, uh, for somebody to acquire refugee status, but you actually have to be in a position of being uh, demonstrably persecuted, um, and that persecution has to be allowed or enabled in some way by the by the government of the country that you're in. And so, when people come from their country and they're allowed to come here and they're given a, a green card. Um, they go through a whole long a vetting process. It's a, a very uh, onerous and, and lengthy process. Um, when they arrive um, into the United States and they are met by a refugee resettlement agency like IILA, and we meet them at the airport, and sometimes they have a, a what we call a U.S. tie, so our close friend or a family member that is going to kind of maybe uh, give them help, shelter, housing, and help them get onto their at their feet, but. We're finding fewer and fewer of those U.S. ties are able to provide much uh, financial assistance or support. So the Refugee Resettlement Agency is responsible for making sure that that individual or that family are um, are have some kind of housing. Um, a few years ago, we would have an apartment ready immediately that the family or the individual arrived in the U.S., but that's not uh, possible any longer because... As you know, we're in such a dire need of uh, affordable housing is an extremely short 
supply. So right now we're having to put um, refugees when they arrive up in a hotel for uh, usually a couple of weeks and we get can get them into um, permanent housing. Uh, we're responsible for helping um, enroll them in public benefits, which they're qualified until they can support themselves. Um, we get the kids enrolled into school, get them enrolled into Medi-Cal, um, uh, make sure that they've... Uh, if they if they have to get an employment authorization document, make sure that's in the works. Get, um, have the get them enrolled into uh, with doctors, and if they need to see a doctor, make sure they get the medical treatment that they need. Um, and then all the all the different parts of what it means to establish a life in another country, we're we're responsible for helping them navigate um, in the first days that they're here. And, and when you're when you're navig when you're helping them navigate, are you also providing them funds for yeah. for food, yeah. the food and shelter and clothes yes. that they so may need? They get um they get an uh, allocation from the U.S. government. I think it's just it's is it one thousand two hundred and fifty? It's about twelve hundred and fifty dollars per person. That that's the resettlement grant that they get. Um, so you can imagine your one person coming, um, you, your $1,250, that is supposed to uh, provide um, your your deposit, your rent, your money until you can kind of um, start receiving public benefits or get a job. So it's not very much. Families no. that arrive are in a, a, a lot better position because they can pull their uh, $1,250 per person and that that that's a, a lot better. Yes. So, we have to be creative with um, pulling in some other funding and other support to make sure, especially that individuals and smaller families um, don't slip through the cracks and we, we get them uh, into the public benefit system as quickly as possible and also try to get them employed as, as quickly as quickly as possible. Well, I've heard also in Los Angeles, at least, that a lot of the faith community is involved. I don't know if they are working directly with the International Institute, but there are I understand some of the various different faith churches and yeah. synagogues with have turned to congregants who have extra housing, extra space within their own home for temporarily taking in uh, individuals or families. Is yeah. that and that's that's definitely the case in the last year or so. I think um, the faith community has always been very supportive and help and helpful, um, has and has been there, especially in refugee crises. So you know, in, when the Vietnamese arrived here in the eighties, seventies, eighties, a lot of the faith communities adopted Vietnamese families and really were incredibly instrumental in um, helping those families get on their feet. Um, and we saw the same thing again with the arrival of the Afghan um, refugees who were fleeing the fall of Kabul, who eventually were brought, um, arrived and started arriving in LA last October, a year ago, October, I should say October 2021, we were able to turn to um, a, a number of different uh, Christian churches, Catholic churches, uh, Jewish synagogues, um, Muslim temples, uh, you know, faith communities of all stripes. Um, were that's really, yeah, that's wonderful to hear. It, it's really that's great. Yes. Well, you know, that's so how many uh, in Los Angeles, how many Afghans during that that horrible time, uh, how many did come to Los Angeles? So I think in total. So there are there are four um, refugee resettlement agencies that are currently serving not just 
um, uh, Los Angeles County, but also um, Southern California down as far as San Diego. And San Diego has another uh, set of uh, refugee resettlement agencies. Uh, but I think uh, uh, between all of us, there are probably about 2,000 that arrived in um, L.A. County. Um, and then uh, we we actually resettled uh, 900 uh, Afghans um, in uh, between L.A. County, Orange County, Kern, Ventura um, and San Bernardino and Riverside counties uh, in within about a four month period, which was an enormous number of people. Oh, that's just incredible. It is. And then, of course, you know, um, we're talking about the Afghan situation, but eventually, you know, we're, we're going to talk about also the most current, which is the Ukrainian. But yes. I'm, I'm thinking with the Afghan people, the trauma that they went through yes. had to, when you talk about sort of full service as International Institute does, you must have had to initially and right away deal with, with the language barrier and the tremendous emotional trauma that so yes. many people were going yes. And I think what made the Afghan situation a little bit rather different than, um, say, the Ukrainian, for example, or than and very different from the situation of the, 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 the refugees that we typically serve. The difference is that things ha happen so quickly in Afghanistan. I mean, I think people knew that eventually the Taliban would you know, retake the country, but nobody realized it would happen quite as quickly. So it was almost like overnight that these folks had to decide they were going to leave. So many of them left without um, barely just with the clothes on their back or with hardly and they had to leave. They left money behind in the banks. They weren't able to get any money out. And literally from one day to the next, they were, you know, they were living in Afghanistan and thinking about a long term future in Afghanistan. And then within a few days, they were on a, a plane after having undergone horrific um, uh, experience, uh, horrific conditions uh, at the airport plane coming. U.S. or Doha or somewhere in Europe or Uganda or somewhere. I mean, so just overnight. And that is quite, it's extremely traumatic. And and so you had to do, you know, a lot of, you must, do, do you have um, staff that uh, speak the language yeah. or had translators so that people could be able to sit and kind of process for themselves yeah. what they yeah. were so that's right. So one of the things that made an already difficult situation um, even more difficult was that under the Trump administration, the refugee resettlement system had basically been dismantled. The funding mm -hmm. was disappeared. And so, um, you know, bef back in 2016, I think there were eight or nine refugee resettlement agencies in serving just Los Angeles County. Um, and by the time uh, August 2021 rolled around, at that time, there were just three of us left, three three refugees. Oh, yes. And so, of course, we'd also um, downsized. You know, we, we were in the process of staffing up and trying to recruit new case managers. But um, we didn't, we, you know, at ILA, we had two seasoned case managers left. Um, and so over the next few months, we hired at a voracious rate, uh, primarily uh, Afghan uh, case managers, so people who spoke Dari and Pashto. So by the time the first major wave of Afghans started arriving in October, uh, I think we'd hired um, three 
uh, Afghandari Pashto speaking case managers, and then went on to hire several others over the next few weeks. Uh, but they were instrumental in, um, you know, helping us to serve this population. Many oh, of them, absolutely. not all, of them, but many of them do not speak English. Um, so, of course. Yes. And well, then, oh, and also for, just for people to know what a case manager is, that means that you're you're kind of it's kind of like a, a social work position. Yes. In, in which you deal with with the various different aspects that the, a person is struggling with. Yes. Basically, the case. Uh-huh. helping the clients navigate all of the different um, things that they need to do, the, navigate the bureaucracy, uh, making sure that they have what they need, um, translating for them, getting on the phone to call um, DPSS because the CalFresh application hasn't gone through, uh, helping them figure out where, where to get English classes, all of those kinds of things there, there. But we had a lot of people arriving at once. In November, in four days, we had 200 Afghans who arrived in the, in the space of four days. So we were, you know, people were working 18 hours, so don't forget, we have to meet them at the airport. We have to make sure that we had to house them so that we were housing them in Airbnbs and hotels at that point. Yeah. Uh, get them food um, but to, to last them for a few days. Get them uh, financial, actual cash, because usually they had no money when they arrived and they needed some money. So all of that took an enormous amount of um, logistical planning. And this is, you know, we had people s- s- spread over two or three counties. Uh, so it was just, it was kind of an insane time. Um, and then in the new year, we took a little pause right around Christmas because we were uh, overwhelmed. We had, you know, 300 arrivals in the space of um, uh, about a month. And, um, you know, and that's more people than we'd actually received refugees we'd received in the previous like three years. So oh, incredible. <laughs> and then on top, and then of course, you know, we haven't even talked about all, all the, the struggles and the barriers caused by the COVID. Yes. And then it, 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 so this okay. is all happening under that context. Absolutely. And, and then so we, in, in uh, December, we, we realized we needed more um, hands on deck. We needed more staff than we were getting through the regular recruitment process. Uh, so we actually identified some of our clients who were, were fluent English speaking and, of course, spoke Dari and or Pashto as well and who um, we, we thought would, would be. So we hired several of our clients just to uh, initially to help like meet. How wonderful. That's yeah, it, it was great. So initially, that's that the airport and accompanying them to their hotels and um, helping with translation and troubleshooting and that kind of thing. And then several months after we hired them, we were able to promote them into case management um, positions. And so we have a number of our, our clients from 2021 who are working with us in case management positions and doing very, very well. That's a, that's a great success story. And it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, win, absolutely. That's an example of what a win-win is, Yes. <laughs> Well, it's amazing that, you know, with the intensity of these traumas that are happening around the world in certain countries and with certain people that you that, you know, International Institute has time for the other things that you've mentioned, which is helping low, you know, low income families that are here already in Los Angeles and dealing with, you know, our human trafficking, which is really uh, one of unfortunately one of the worst things that are happening in this beautiful city of Los Angeles and that you also have minors arriving by themselves. So, you know, you're, you're dealing uh, with a lot of people in horrible humanitarian situations uh, with dealing with tremendous trauma. 
Yes, that, that we, we are. Uh, but fortunately, we have an amazing staff who are um, really very good at their jobs and um, have a lot of empathy as, as well as a lot of the skills needed to support um, these folks. Well, that's very true. And then they have you as the leader. Um, yeah. and I, I, I try to make sure that they can do their job as effectively as possible. That's what you, 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 are, yeah, you have the experience that is so needed right now. I think you've landed just just in the right spot at the right moment. I feel very, very blessed to be here. Well, we're very blessed, I think, as a city and maybe, you know, is for, for the whole country and the world to understand as a model what what can what needs to be done and and what can be done. And maybe that brings us to really talking about our most urgent uh mm-hmm problem at the moment i'll put it that way and that is of course this endless ukrainian war and probably for you know many ukrainians may have had the same experience and somewhat like the afghans where they had no idea uh and then overnight uh felt that you know their lives were threatened now are they considered uh asylum seekers or refugees um, they are considered actually, so there's another designation, which is actually what most of the Afghans arrived uh, as well, humanitarian parolees. So that means that they, um, uh, it's a little bit different between the Afghans and the Ukrainians. Um, so, um, both are eligible to apply for temporary protected status once their humanitarian parole status runs out. Um, with the Afghans, because of the situation in Afghanistan, where they are, uh, many of them are likely to be per- or were persecuted or certainly face uh, persecution and death if they returned. They are eligible. Many many of our Afghan arrivals are eligible for to apply for asylum. Um, some of them are eligible or had already applied for special immig- immigrant visa status, and that is a particular visa. Um, uh, which is available to uh, Iraqis and Afghans who work for the U.S. Uh, government in some capacity. Um, and then there are a number of other kind of different visa um, possibilities, depending on if you if you work for a U.S. nonprofit or a media organization or you're, uh, you're you know, you're a humanitarian worker or something like that. So there are a, a various different designations. Um, so that that gives them a pathway to uh, be able to stay here permanently in the um, in the U.S. So right now we're hoping that Congress will pass the um, Afghan Adjustment Act, which they've failed to do so far. Um, and if once that act passes, it would um, allow uh, basically it would allow Afghans who arrived here who were airlifted out of Kabul and arrived as humanitarian parolees uh, to be able to immediately go to, to um, a, 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 a be a given a green card and permanent residency without yeah. having through the asylum process so the asylum process is very very lengthy and time consuming and it's incredibly backlogged with uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers who are here from all over the world who've been waiting places for years to to have sure the the ukrainians are a little bit different it's a little bit less clear what their permanent pathway to, um, uh, or their pathway to permanent residency in the U.S. is likely to be. So I think for many Ukrainians, they are still hoping to be able to go back to the Ukraine. Of course, because they're hoping that the war is going to end. Yes, yes. So yes. they are 
you know, so I think with Afghanistan, it's highly unlikely that anytime soon the Taliban will be out of Afghanistan. That is looking like a long term situation. Um, the war in Ukraine could be a long term situation, too, unfortunately. But uh, as I said earlier, just because you are fleeing a war, that doesn't give you um, a, a pathway to apply for asylum, which would if you're granted asylum, then you can you, you would get. Um, permanent residency, a green card. So because um, unless you come from a Russian occupied uh, area, or maybe there's some other um, unusual set of circumstances, you are pr not being persecuted by your government. And that is the primary uh, indicator. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. So did what with Ukrainians, how many Ukrainians ended up coming to Los Angeles? You know, I'm not I, sure exact number, but I, definitely a few thousand. A few thousand. So, yes. so did the have the Ukrainians? Now, this has been very recent. I would imagine, like in in this last year of twenty twenty two, is when the Ukrainians came. Well, actually, my understanding is that um, California and Los Angeles, in particular, has one of the highest um, uh, rates of Ukrainian resettlement for for many years. So we have a, a large number of Ukrainians here that came, probably maybe under the Soviet. Um, yes. Right. Yes. Yes. So you already had a, a, a very solid Ukrainian community here in Los Angeles. So that that was that a great advantage for the Yeah, I think that's very, very helpful. And that's part of the reason why we have so many Ukrainians arriving here. Their their um, entry point into the U.S. was also very different to the Afghans. So the um, Biden administration launched the um, United for Ukraine program. And so Ukrainians were able to come to the U.S. Uh, if they had a sponsor. So it could be a, a friend, a family member. In some cases, it was complete strangers. But people who are willing to take a financial responsibility for um, the Ukrainian uh, person or family mm -hmm. um, were here. Um, and so they came because they had uh, had sponsors. And so you you could you would still be involved with them by offering them so many different kinds. Yes. Of services. Yes. And we, Even we, though they had the financial support from a family member or or somebody here that was Ukrainian, let's say, you as an as an institute, you were able to still be like yeah. a, a multi-service yeah. provider for them. That's right. So we've we've been providing case management uh, services just to you know assist with um, application for public benefits. Same type of thing. Uh, we we're mm -hmm. able to give some housing assistance because it's just been impossible for um, most of the sponsors to provide this extended kind of support because now we're coming into a, a year since yes. Um, Right. And, and I think initially people thought it would be maybe a couple of months that they were going to be here. And now it's looking much longer term and it's it's really exhausted the financial um, capabilities of most of the sponsors. So we are housing assistance. Again, this is um, Office of Refugee Resettlement funding from the State Department uh, and that we are we are uh, charged with um, dispersing. And still a very, you know, in a very difficult time. In yes. States right now for everybody, uh, especially I would say financially. That's mm -hmm. you know, the very a lot of pressure and stress on on people uh, in so many different walks of life. So it's it's a difficult time. But then again, I think uh, you know all of us were watching those incredible scenes at the at the train stations uh, when in Ukraine, right in Kiev, and in um, 
Lvov and these mm -hmm. different places where people were lined up, you know, with with yes. suitcases and their children and, and having to say goodbye to most of the men who yeah. were not coming. Very difficult. Um, that, you know, that many people wondered, well, what happened to those people and where did they go? And of course, many of them, it seemed like they were being resettled in much closer countries such as Poland or Romania. Europe has received the bulk of the Ukrainian refugees. Of course. And then only a certain number maybe even wanted to come so far away because, as you said, they thought, well, you know, why would they come all the way to the United States when this was only they're going, going home soon? <laughs> it's only supposed to be for a few months. Yes. So but this is so this is the work of the International Institute. And, you know, we all of us in Los Angeles have to be grateful to you and to the Institute for the work you're doing and for the humanitarian support that you give. And, and for other, you know, people who are not necessarily uh, refugees or, or asylum seekers, but simply are in terrible distress of one kind or another. And I know our time is coming to an end. I wonder if there's anything in particular you would like to say to our listeners. No, I think just, um, just to always be attuned to the, the plight of people who are fleeing their countries and whether it's, you know, with official refugee status or they're, you know, so many Central Americans or people from Venezuela are, are fleeing from poverty and violence uh, and it's them stay in their own country and people will only um, flee if they have absolutely no other choice and they are driven by desperation to come here to try to uh, ensure a better life for their for themselves and their families and I think that um, if any of us were in their shoes we would be doing the same thing and I just hope that we can continue to be a, a welcoming um, country to people who are, are fleeing violence, persecution, war, poverty, um, and to, to, to enlarge our hearts to welcome them and make them feel at home here. Well, I think that's a very important message. It's a very uh, spirit, spiritually uh, true message. And we're our, we are a country of immigrants. We are a country of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and more of immigrants. We are it is what makes uh, the United States the dynamic, yes, and and you know prosperous country that we have had the great blessing to be. So I think that's a very important message that you just said. And I think before I say goodbye to you, that I I would like you to give information to everybody if people would like to make donations to help with the work that you're doing. Yes, well, I would encourage people to go to our website um, and we have some wonderful stories of um, immigrants, our own clients who've, uh, who are flourishing here. Um, you know, when people are given a chance to, to, to reach their potential, um, the vast majority of refugees and immigrants are going to, to, to reach for them and try to do their very best. So our website is www.iilosangeles.org iilosangeles.org um, and you can find out more about the services that we provide and what we're doing and the, the lives we're touching and changing and if you feel called to um, volunteer or to do donate uh, then there's all kinds of information about how to do that as well. Thank you so much Cambria in the midst of such a demanding time to have an opportunity for us to hear from you and to hear all about the great work that you're doing. Thank, Thank you.
so much. Thank you very much for, um, for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you, Cambria. So Thank much. You. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Commentaries from the Edge. Please subscribe and you will be notified of all future episodes.